Alrighty. We begin another session of the most illustrious Colin show. You know, everyone has been waiting with bated breath, as usual, for our session this evening. Um, Richard should be joining us momentarily. Don't want to go on for too long because I would think that at least a sizable minority of listeners uh, would want to make comments or questions or criticize me or praise me or say something on their own accord. So I want to leave a uh, healthy amount of time to do that. Um, my most recent call-in session was this past Sunday, and it was by far <laughs> the longest I had ever conducted, have ever conducted, um, stretched to over four hours, and the impetus was specifically so people could you know, present counter-arguments to my thesis, you could say, on U.S. entry into World War II, which um, I'm pretty staggered by the reaction to more broadly in that I I don't know if I would have anticipated this or not. I guess I didn't give it much thought, but I wouldn't in a vacuum necessarily have assumed that such a wide-ranging um, debate would be, would be prompted by my discussion of that, this topic. Um, and so, you know, when I presented this, uh, when I posted a link to this call-in on Twitter uh, about a half hour or so ago, I tongue-in-cheek referred to it as a historically revisionist call-in session. And um, thinking about it, and uh, Richard, I wonder if you agree with this, but thinking about it, I actually think that's a fruitful way, maybe even the most fruitful way, to think about the current geopolitical predicament that the U.S. is in, um, and obviously that Ukraine and Russia is in, and other countries, uh, is by reference to historical precedent. Because for one thing, you and I and everybody in this room is at a huge informational deficit when it comes to the actual like operational developments that are going on in Ukraine itself in terms of the war, right? Um, it's not like I am personally in uh, the Donbass and I can give minute-by-minute minute updates on tactical progress of either side. It's not like you or I or anyone in this room is in the Kremlin and we can share uh, direct insights into the nature of Putin's thinking on, for example, the question of nuclear weapons use. Um, it's not even like you and I are in the Pentagon and thus could have some sort of direct access to planning that's underway or exigencies that are being discussed or strategy that's being hashed out. Now, hopefully the media climate or the media environment in which we exist is robust enough that we will get information out of those sources, particularly American sources in the case of the American media. Um, but 
Uh, although I can analyze things and I can read primary source material when it comes out and I can sort of synthesize information, um, I am just ep epistemically at an unbridgeable gulf uh, in terms of how uh, accessing the full scope of the information available to sort of characterize present conditions. Um, and so one way to sort of redress that, at least in terms of theorizing present conditions, is to refer to past historical epochs in which there is a rather comprehensive, not fully comprehensive, interestingly, in reading some of the more recent scholarship on World War II and U.S. entry and so forth, I'm struck by how much of the most cutting-edge scholarship in terms of quote-unquote revisionism that challenges conventional mythology uh, has really only come out in the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, and, you know, partially at Richard's suggestion, although I had this book anyway and was sort of planning to read it at some point, but um, one example of this is the book by Sean McMeekin, uh, Stalin's War, that came out only last year. Um, and I've only just started it, only read a small portion of it, but even just what I've read so far, it's, you know, pretty stunning. Um, basically, the thesis of McMeekin, and Richard, correct me if I'm misstating this in any way, but basically, McMeekin's thesis is that sort of conventional historiography around World War II has been obsessively and disproportionately Hitler-centric since the 1940s. Uh, not that, obviously, Hitler was an insignificant actor in the Second World War. I mean, no one would deny that who's not insane. Uh, but according to McMeekin, Stalin's centrality to the progression of that global conflict has been severely underrated, um, and so too has the human suffering and the territorial conquests and the just vast array of like depredations that Stalin unleashed, uh, in part because Stalin had been provisioned starting in June of 1941 by the United States, at the direction of Franklin Roosevelt, given the enormous powers that he had assumed to unilaterally wage war, uh, Stalin had been provisioned with what McMeekin says is that in today's dollars, uh, something like over a trillion dollars worth of war armaments. So given that one of the consequences of the Second World War, or at least the consequences of the conc a concluding phase of the Second World War in 1945, was that Stalin was able to conquer vast stretches of the world's territory, including, by the way, Poland for the subsequent 40 years, which was the country that ostensibly precipitated the initiation of the Second World War as we know it when Hitler invaded it in 1939 in September, and then, of course, France and Britain declared war on Germany because uh, they had given Poland a security guarantee. Now, of course, most people probably know, if, if they're faintly familiar with the history, that a couple weeks after Hitler invaded, Stalin also invaded, and he, McMeekin points out that Stalin seized an even larger 
stretch of Polish territory than Hitler had seized when he first invaded. Um, but that's neither here nor there, at least in terms of I'm not really mentioning that to get bogged down in the historical details, although I guess we can get into them if people want. The point being that uh, per McMeekin, the undue, disproportionate, even obsessive uh, Hitler focus of World War II historiography has radically distorted um, contemporary views of the nature of that conflict and the consequences of it, one of which was the empowerment of what I think anybody who's sensible would have to acknowledge was you know, tyrannical rule by uh, Stalin. You know, one of the um, arguments that Norman Thomas, who was this six-time presidential candidate for the Socialist Party in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, um, who for decades was the most preeminent socialist figure in the U.S. Um, and who had stridently opposed U.S. entry to the war up until the very day that Pearl Harbor happened. You know, on December 6th of 1941, Norman Thomas wrote a letter to the New York Times, day before Pearl Harbor, reiterating his strident opposition to U.S. entry into the war. And then when Pearl Harbor happened... Thomas accepted that his advocacy had failed. He withdrew the letter, and he became a reluctant and critical supporter of the U.S. Uh, war effort because at that point, he regarded there to be no choice. Uh, but one of the reasons why Thomas, um, even in the aftermath of the World War, even when the U.S. had quote-unquote won, um, as in 1951, Thomas, in his memoir, and it's funny because I, I had read portions of this memoir, but I made sure to reread it even closer because it had been cited as evidence that I had, that I had supposedly lied um, in my initial article on World War II. Um, but in that memoir by Thomas, he says that one of the reasons why he was so adamant in his opposition to U.S. entry into World War II Again, up until the very day that Pearl Harbor happened when he perceived there to be no other choice existentially uh, because the U.S. was f functionally at full, formal war at that point uh, was because he didn't perceive it to be worth, worthy of American blood and treasure to choose Hit, uh, Stalin, one tyrannical madman, over Hitler, another tyrannical madman. And now that's Norman Thomas, the premier socialist of the United States, saying that of Stalin, head of the putatively socialist Soviet Union. Norman Thomas was constantly in, you know, uh, mired in internal sort of ideological warfare with sections of the American left uh, that were pro-Stalinist, uh, whereas Thomas was thoroughly against Stalin, uh, opposed to Stalin. And regarded as one of the tragedies of the war, that U.S. armament policy had so drastically fortified and enhanced Stalin's capacities to wage wars of conquest and inflict uh, mass death on civilians. That seems like a sensible view to me uh, that Thomas ex expressed. Others may disagree, um, which is you know all just to say. I guess, and I could go down this road for so long in my soliloquy, uh, but I guess one reason why I do think that 
quote-unquote revisionist history is a useful prism uh, through which to kind of assess these contemporary issues around Ukraine and prospective nuclear war um, is because, you know, we, we do have a pretty comprehensive record about how like historical contingencies work, meaning these chains of events that lead to one another in sort of an ever escalating spiral of destruction and misery beyond even what many had fathomed could possibly be the case. And, you know, given the uncertainties associated with this current situation now with Russia and Ukraine and Putin supposedly uh, being on the cusp of announcing the official annexation of these several provinces in Ukraine, which conducted their, you know, supposed referendums, um, it's worth underscoring that if World War II teaches us anything at all, uh, namely U.S. entry therein, it's that these conflicts are so like multi-causal and so multifaceted and so fraught with uncertainty and have such a potentiality of leading to unimaginable destruction that you think it could give people today in 2022 a bit more pause about what it is that they seem to be just mindlessly enabling this escalatory spiral toward. Uh, but I don't see a whole lot of cognizance or appreciation of that potentiality. Um, and you know, I'll wrap up with just a quick concluding point because uh, I, uh, Richard and I, or at least I sent Richard a, uh, an interesting academic article. Again, very recent, uh, 2020, uh, that sheds additional light on some of these issues. And the issue that I think it particularly sheds light on is the issue of contingencies, like historical sequences of events that are not able to be predicted in the present, but are preceded by actions which gave rise to them. Um, and those actions were taken without full thought as to the potential consequences. So, for example, Franklin Roosevelt dies suddenly, April 1945, um, Sorry if I'm sound like I'm giving this completely banal history lesson to school children, but just sort of setting the stage here. Roosevelt dies. Harry Truman takes office, right? As president, Harry Truman, not the most well-known figure, <laughs> um, had only just become vice president a few months prior when Roosevelt picked him in, to join the ticket in 19, the 1944 election when Roosevelt won, you know, a doubly unprecedented fourth term. Uh, Roosevelt, I mean, Truman was not, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if I would earnestly describe Roosevelt as an intellectual necessarily, but to whatever extent Roosevelt was an intellectual, Truman was sort of on the opposite end of that spectrum, right? He was sort of a simple, you know, I'm not even saying that in a judgmental way, sort of just like a simple person, uh, didn't have, you know, extensive formal higher education, uh, didn't come from a high socioeconomic status. Uh, many people know, and it's true, that uh, when Truman left office, he was so uh, financially dependent on the state still 
uh, that Congress enacted for the first time a pension program for former presidents because, you know, it seemed a bit strange uh, and unnecessary to allow a former president, Truman, to slide into penury uh, just because he had left office. Um, but I guess, you know, the, the ultimate point here is that Truman takes office. The process whereby the nuclear bombs would be dropped on Japan was already well in development uh, by the military, uh, especially Henry Stimson, uh, who was the Secretary of War and had been for several years and is one of the prime movers in this whole saga, by the way, and sort of underappreciated. But, uh, you know, Simpson basically advises Truman that this process whereby nuclear bombs would be dropped on Japan was already in development. It wasn't even really thought that Truman himself would have much of a role in approving or facilitating or executing that process. It was considered mainly a military matter that wasn't even really within Truman's purview. Um, and... Uh, what this article, which is very interesting, it's Alex Wellerstein. Uh, it's called The Kyoto Misconception. It's part of a uh, larger book called The Age of Hiroshima, published Princeton University Press 2020. What uh, Wellerstein posits is that when Truman made his first public statement on the, the deployment of the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima, when Truman said that Hiroshima was a, quote, military base. And as such, this brand new, unfathomably destructive weapon had been used on a military base in Japan. Truman may not have been consciously lying. Because what Wellerstein posits, and he makes a plausible case for, is that Truman, who, you know, had only just been brought into these high tier, upper tier national security decisions within the past several months. Truman was genuinely mistaken about Hiroshima supposedly being a military base. In other words, Truman thought genuinely that it was a military base um, and was mistaken when he falsely said to the public that it was a military base once the bomb was dropped because you know, there were, the, the gears were already in motion to, to launch this attack. Truman played a minor role in actually bringing it about. Um, what Truman did do after the attack on Nagasaki was Truman did intercede with the military and state that any further nuclear deployments, nuclear weapons deployments, because there were plans to potentially keep dropping them, including on Tokyo, uh, Truman said that any further nuclear bomb deployments would have to be approved personally by the president. Uh, so Truman instituted that expectation for the first time after the bombing of Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945. Um, so think of that contingency, right? Truman just through a whole series of bureaucratic machination and minutia and through a coincidental series of events whereby he assumes the presidency in the, you know, in the last phase of U.S. Uh, warfare uh, because Roosevelt just happens to die suddenly um, at, I think Roosevelt was only in his fifth, uh, he might have been 61 or something. Roosevelt was not particularly old when he died, at least by contemporary standards. Uh, but through a whole, again, series of just chance events, Truman finds himself in this position. He finds himself apparently mistaken that this weapon of 
unfathomable destructive potential was going to be used on a military base and thus, thus end the war, which, of course, many Americans wanted done uh, in the Pacific. Um, and there you, you have it. That's the first use of a nuclear weapon on, uh, in terms of warfare. And that's what now we're possibly on the precipice of uh, happening again. Now, of course, I, I don't know. You don't know what's going on in Putin's brain. That's sort of useless speculation. We can go by his own statements where he said last week that, you know, this is not a bluff. Zelensky himself said on an interview with CBS, for, you know, for American consumption, that uh, he, Zelensky, did not regard Putin to be bluffing. Um, if you read a lot of the coverage, like in the New York Times and so forth, of the potential for nuclear war breaking out, there seems to be an emerging consensus that the belief is that, indeed, Putin is not bluffing. So we don't know what contingencies could spring from this current predicament. Um, and you think that if one has anything in their control right now, again, 29th of September, 2022, um, they would exercise that control to minimize the risk of those contingencies spiraling totally out of control into the great unknown of some sort of annihilation scenario. Uh, and yet nobody really seems to be doing that at the moment, uh, which is, you know, a bit disconcerting, I would say. And sorry for the protracted intro. Uh, Richard, any thoughts on anything I've said or anything that you want to bring up? So, Stalin's War is a great book. Um, and, you know, it gets it gets better as time goes on. I, I think it sounds like you haven't read the whole thing yet, but um, the post-war is the most, is I think the most interesting thing, uh, because basically says that, um, you know, after Hitler was basically beaten, the, the writing was on the wall. I mean, the U S was still shipping, you know, as much or more material to Stalin when the only purpose of it was basically taking over, um, <laughs> Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe. Also a lot of stuff about the, uh, and those uh, shipments, by the way, were via Officially instituted, supposedly simply to aid the defense of Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, good stuff on China too. I mean, them. Uh, he blames the U.S. for cutting off Chang. Are you in the middle of a meal, by the way? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I just I just uh, started eating while you were uh, while you were uh, giving me that half hour introduction. So. Sorry, <laughs> just uh, having <laughs> having some uh, yeah having a little food. Um, yeah, so the. Uh, uh, and, and that's good too. And basically, he under I think he underplays this uh, in the uh, story uh, in his in his book. Um, but then I bring it out and I discuss it a little bit with the, the podcast, the CSBI podcast with him that people can look up. Is that basically he thinks that the U.S. government was just you know sort of riven with communist uh, spies and Soviet sympathizers, and he seems to think that this could explain um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the American behavior. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's very, I mean, even like the war fighting, how they gave, you know, Stalin, the, you know, they opened up the Western Front for Stalin, which, you know, he thinks that they didn't really have to do um, when they did. Um, and so, yeah, this is right. Um, you know, lessons for history and, you know, contingency. I think what people, the people who are uh, the pro-war side would say is like, yeah, but, you know, they, they would say, okay, you get us down this path. And then bad things can happen. But at the same time, like not doing anything 
not standing in the face of aggression uh, can also lead to bad things too, right? They'll say, oh, you should have stood up to Putin uh, years ago when it was Crimea. We should have done like the sanctions that we're doing now and you know, we should have brought Ukraine to NATO and then we wouldn't be uh, in this situation uh, today. Uh, but, you know, I admire, I mean, I admire the fact that you won't shut up about this, that you're, you know, that you keep talking about World War Two. It was a great article, um, the one on uh, the one on the American, the American entry into the uh, into the war. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's pretty much, you know, it's pretty much indisputable. I mean, there's not there's about Roosevelt wanting to get the U.S. into the war and basically the, the lying about it. And also the uh, the bombing of population centers is not well-known enough. Uh, so, you know, kudos to you for not, you know, not caring that, like, it obviously upsets a lot of people. And it's funny, like, the emotional attachment, I, I, I didn't, you know, uh, you know, it sort of surprises me. I mean, there's really, you know, there's, I, and, you know, I know, like, school children are like, oh, World War Two, but, like, I, I thought that, you know, I, I didn't know that, like, that sort of kind of, like, rah-rah patriotism still had as much of a, uh, as a hold on like, you know, educated people who talk about politics, but you know, what you're showing is that uh, it apparently does. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by that. Also on his historians, I I mean, there's, I've been, I've been inundated with, you know, professional historians at major universities, um, including one from the University of Chicago, by the way. Um, I guess that guy, I think his name is Paul Post. He was, uh, he's international relations, which, you know, is somewhat tangential to history, I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, the point being that, you know, a lot of, you know, tenured professors in the field of history have been swarming me on this subject. Now, if I'm so inconsequential and if I'm not even worth entertaining, as it seems to be what they insinuate as they're barraging me with these attacks, uh, you wonder why they even bother in the first place. Um, it seems like they don't really believe their own rhetoric, rhetoric is about my inconsequentiality. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, I've been struck by how much of a crusade a lot of, you know, ma- mainline prominent Historians, not just people who are interested in politics or knowledgeable about politics and have a well, are they World War focus on are history. They like, are they people who have like written serious articles or books on World War Two? Or yeah, like- yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this guy. There's this one guy who I've been who I've had a million back and forth with. Uh, let me make sure I have his name right because I don't want to uh, besmirch anyone. Uh, Alan. It's a professor of history at Syracuse um, who actually did write a book on British involvement in the Second World War up until, I think, 1940 or 41 uh, that came out a couple years ago. It was well-received. There's a review in the Wall Street Journal uh, touting it as a, you know, a worthy contribution to the literature um, so what's interesting about yeah. that is the U.S. doesn't enter the war until late 1941, uh, right? right. So it's Officially, like, anyway, yeah. Yeah, so you, I mean, it can be, I mean, academia has become so narrow that you could, it might not be surprising that these people just don't know. Like, even the ones who wrote about World War II might have some very narrow uh, specialty. Like, international relations, they don't know anything. They, they use history, but they're generally not good historians. They're generally fake uh, historians. 
Uh, yeah. so a lot of okay. His name is Alan Alport, A-L-L-P-O-R-T, professor of history at Syracuse. I think he is British himself. Um, but anybody who's like, been has written directly about like a yeah. Roosevelt biographer or like something like that. Um, well, you know, he American. wrote a book. His most recent book is called Britain at Bay, the Epic Story of the Second World War, 1930 to 1941. So, I mean, it deals with Roosevelt maybe ancillarily. Yeah, he might um, not know anything about American domestic Maybe politics. not. Yeah, that's the thing. Because, you know, it was funny when he first reacted, like, because when he, he first read my full article, the first one that I wrote um, on, that was published on the, uh, the 23rd, the one you read, read and were commenting on, um, he sort of slipped up and said that not all of it was bad, meaning that despite his whole posture of maligning me as a total idiot who didn't know what I was talking about, uh, he seemed to like partially concede that there might have been aspects of the article that were worthwhile that maybe he didn't know about. Um, but, you know, given sort of the tenor of the public discourse, if you want to put it that way, around this subject and, and the supposition that I'm only talking about this in the first place to undermine the case for interventionist U.S. policy in, in World War in, uh, in Ukraine today, um, even people who might, like this guy apparently did, get something of value from what I wrote, really are boxed in from openly acknowledging that because even if they give a partial, you know, con- you know <laughs> half-hearted uh, or qualified praise of anything that I've done, uh, it could be read as some sort of endorsement of me, who's you know being portrayed as a Hitler apologist, a Holocaust uh, denier, and apologizing for the Holocaust and uh, or apologizing for Hitler and denying the Holocaust, all in service of my current policy agenda, which is around you know enabling or uh, enabling enabling the genocide of Ukraine or ex- excusing Putin's mass rampage. I mean, that, so that's, I mean, if those are the stakes, you can understand why there'd be a reluctance to express even qualified endorsement of anything I've done, because, you know, that could then be tied to them supposedly endorsing these nefarious aims I supposedly have. Yeah. Let me look at your Twitter. You know, I'm off Twitter. I'm sorry. I'm like, just, you know, I'm like yeah. a stranger to what's going on. That's like I'm missing a lot of fun, but let me, let me well, see you're not going to be able to go through all of it right now, but, um, yeah. Okay. Let me just see the, I took, I sort of took what sort of was implicitly your advice and tried to steer myself more toward writing long form on yeah. it, which is why I have to, I have yeah, that, you know, that, that two long form. Crazy? Well, you know, the first long form piece provoked, uh, really enormous reaction. So, um, this Tim Skelet, this Tim Skelet guy blocked me. This is Tim Skellett. Uh, yeah, the second one, I don't know if you read the follow-up I did, but that just sort of expanded I read some, on... some of it seemed yeah, yeah. too, uh, too uh, high school girlish. Oh, this Josh Katz guy. I'm sure he is. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't have bothered... I, I did, when I did my call-in on Sunday, he joined, and I had an hour-long exchange with him. Um, you know, I wouldn't have bothered responding to his critique if it wouldn't be a basis for actually elucidating other kind of substantive facets of the argument or the points at hand. Like if it was just a matter strictly of responding to him, it wouldn't have been worth it. Uh, but I did it because it was, you know, sort of an impetus to 
raise additional uh, details that are pertinent to the, the case. So that's, that's why I did it. But, you know, I, I understand why people would read it and think, oh, well, why do I want to uh, apprise myself of this bizarre squabble between, you know, people on the Internet? Um, but, yeah, I was just curious, Richard, I mean, I, you know, uh, what did you, uh, when you read it, um, did you learn anything that you didn't already know? Did it sort of clarify your thinking about anything? What, what did, what was like, what effect did it have in terms of how you perceive the question of U.S. entry into World War II? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the I knew most of it, but I've forgotten, I think, all of it. Like, I'd read probably a lot of that stuff 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I don't know about, like, I don't know about you, but when I, I read something, I mean, I can read the same book five years later, and, you know, most of it is gone. So, right. uh, you know, it was just really refreshing, uh, my memory. Um, I think the the bomb, the bombing, I think the uh, Roosevelt, uh, the, the most familiar with, uh, to, the most familiar uh, stuff was the Roosevelt um, getting us into the war. The uh, I think I, I knew the uh, stuff about the... Um, uh, about the bombing of civilians. Oh, I did not. I, I wasn't familiar with that literature about uh, Hitler um, and how much he was uh, sort of spurred on. You know, arguably, I know you say it's you know it's. Uh, by the way, you shouldn't do the whole the whole time. You're like, oh, this is all peer review. I think you say peer review like ten times in the article. So like, we we get it. It's peer. <laughs> well, it's peer I mean, because it wasn't because people people will try to contest the arguments in the citations that I'm showing and yeah, make yeah, it seem like had, I'm the one making the argument on my own accord, you know? Yeah, but no, I mean, you had, you had source after source after source. Yeah. I do the timeline of the Holocaust um, and the timeline of American entry, and, you know, I never put them together. And I even knew the, the, the famous Hitler speeches about the extermination of the Jews in Europe. Um, and, you know, I, I, my, my, my understanding was it was always, like, more of a um, gradual thing where, like, Hitler lost hope in winning the war and just wanted to, you know, kill all the Jews. And now it's from what, what you read, it seems like it was more like, it was like, uh, uh, it, it was like they under, like it was, they were, you know, there was more sort of direct than that. It's like they were no longer, um, you know, hostages uh, to prevent American right. entry into the war, uh, which, you know, makes, makes sense. And is, you know, uh, consistent with what I'd read, um, what I'd, you know, what I heard, what I'd read from, uh, about Hitler uh, before, uh, so you know, I think I think it's a convincing piece. I mean, I think it sets out to do what it set out to do. I mean, I, aren't there any people who are just like, yes, Roosevelt? You know, so William. So I saw Buckley, William Buckley, being interviewed once, and he was, uh, you know, like Buckley is always like, he was always sort of sh <clears throat> a shifty character because he would like, he would have like politically views that were politically incorrect in one generation, and then he would like update them to be more like consistent with whatever people are supposed to believe now. So I remember watching an interview with him once when somebody asked him, uh, you said that Roosevelt lied us into World War II. So I guess Buckley at some point must have been like anti-war or something. And he's like, oh, no, no, I said that. But then I said, it, I, what I meant was I was glad he did it because we had to right. World War II. <laughs> right. Right. So, and, and so like that was like, you know, that's one way of dealing with the problem. Is Are there other people who, uh, uh, yeah, are there any people who say that? Like, you know, yeah, I mean, I've smart been, enough to, to know we I've should been, fight this war. I've been deluged with people and not just random trolls, not just anonymous, you know, shit posters um, who say 
outwardly and enthusiastically, even if it's true, and sometimes they'll even concede this as like a factual matter, even if it's true, and I don't use the word lie because I don't know what was in Roosevelt's brain in order to know that he was lying, um, meaning that he was willfully telling what he knew to be falsehoods. Um, I've called it systematic deception because that's really just a factual synopsis of what happened uh, in terms of the campaign by Roosevelt and his uh, administration, including people like Stimson, who was even more hawkish in some ways than Roosevelt was. Um, even people who admit or, or are prepared to concede that there was a massive campaign of deception that uh, facilitated U.S. entry into World War II, they're extremely eager to declare that they regard that to be good. They think it was a great thing. They think it was a wholly justifiable... They think it was the simplest moral judgment ever made in human history for if, if Roosevelt did systematically deceive the public and then into war. Um, and by the way, an un, a largely unwilling public, um, you know, in the follow-up piece that I did, um, I, I spent hours sifting through, again, these ancient academic texts for the, the polling data that has really been buried. Um, there are some polls that some outlets present as to American attitudes toward U.S. entry to the war in you know, 1940, 1941. But they're selectively portrayed because when the most direct question, most direct form of the question is asked to Americans, as it was basically every month and sometimes multiple times a month by, by Gallup and a, another polling agency that was a, a sort of an affiliate of Gallup, uh, even up until the very end, meaning until November of 1941, when that direct question was posed, super majorities of Americans opposed U.S. entry into the war. When asked that direct question, like in a referendum-style fashion, yes or no, do you favor entering the war? Or should the U.S. enter the war, yes or no? Or um, should the U.S. go in or stay out of the war? You know, it would be like 83% would say stay out, something like that. All the way up until the pretty much Pearl Harbor, um, and so, is, is that so? I mean, that surprises people. People thought that the you know, people don't know that there was a, this uh, Lindbergh and anti war. I thought they, I thought that we just all acknowledged now that those were bad people. Well, I mean, they've been who they've were been isolationists and MAGA and American First and all that. Well, they've been sold a certain rendering of the history where, because of this fixation on Lindbergh as like the main emblem of uh, anti war sentiment, um, they'll th they, they'll think that you know. It was only people who were rabid anti-Semites or fascists or pro-Hitler who opposed entering into the war. Uh, you know, the next piece I'm writing now, and I guess I'm on a tear on this subject, but what are you going to do? I just sort of follow my <laughs> just drive. Um, you know, I, I've been, people were challenging me to watch this uh, new PBS documentary that, by coincidence, came out the very day that I started talking about this topic um, by Ken Burns, you know, the... Uh, paradigmatic sort of mainstream documentarian where they get into the, uh, there's a little portion in the second sort of chapter, uh, second uh, episode of three, where they get into, you know, non-interventionist sentiment. And uh, the only representations of non-interventionist sentiment, according to this documentary, and this is what a lot of people are going to consume as the sum total of their knowledge of the period, 
the only uh, exemplars of opposition to U.S. entry into World War II that are presented are Charles Lindbergh, who is seen to be a rabid anti-Semite, and uh, Henry Ford, who I think is more provably anti-Semitic, um, in that you know, Henry Ford did publish a newsletter out of Michigan that published, for example, you know, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and stuff. So, I mean, that's, that's a more open and shut case in terms of him, his personal anti-Semitism. But those are the people that they choose to present as emblematic of non-interventionist sentiment uh, during uh, that period. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me at all if people would have vastly underrated or underestimated uh, the, the scope of do they broad-scale U.S. opposition uh, to the war. Do they emphasize the refugees and the uh, Roosevelt administration and the refugees and all that? Yeah, there's a little, there's a little section where they talk about the USS uh, St. Louis, uh, you know, uh, setting sail from Ger- uh, Hamburg, Germany, to Cuba. Um, the, the thing is called the U.S. and the Holocaust. Uh, the the documentary is called the United States and the Holocaust. Yeah. Well, 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 it, how much is there to say about the the U.S. Like, so what can you talk about? You could talk about anti-war movement. You could talk about the not letting in refugees. Well, how how could you have a whole documentary on? Well, there's the six hours worth of material that's said about it. So. <laughs> well, I mean, well, well, I mean, yeah, it's like it's like you know Japan. <clears throat> It would be like, you know, Japan and the Ukraine war. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, you could say something about it, but like, you know, it seems like it's, uh, you know, it well, seems like I it's mean, you can say, qu- you can, you can say quite a bit. I mean, they get into, um, you know, an incident that lots of people do know about is this incident of the, the St. Louis, the vessel that, you know, set, right. you know, took a bunch of, uh, Jewish, uh, c- civilians from Germany in 1930, was it 1938 or nine? I think it was 1939. Um, and their destination was Cuba. Uh, because all the Jews on board had bought um, like a visa to enable them to relocate to Cuba. While they were aboard the ship, the visas were revoked. Um, and so the ship was basically in limbo. And they tried, you know, the captain of the ship tried, to, you know, then just, you know, headed for Miami. Um, and, uh, you know, Cables were sent or, you know, uh, you know, telegraphs were sent to, uh, you know, Washington, to Roosevelt and so and so forth, pleading that uh, they admit the ship full of uh, Jewish civilians um, and the requests were denied. Now, eventually, um, so they had to set sail back for Europe um, and eventually an agreement was brokered by way of like a Jewish resettlement group that allowed like a third of them to go to Britain, a third of them to go to France, and a third of them, I think, to go to Holland. And then according to the documentary, uh, I think uh, some pr- pretty sizable percentage of the Jews who were on board the ship, uh, you know, maybe 30 per- 20 or 30% or something, um, were said to have been, you know, exterminated um, once, you know, the... <laughs> The, 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 the well, Sorry. what's the most? Exce- I'm laughing at this yeah. comment. In the, in the, we have a chat. That was not the most well-timed it? laugh, I have to say. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just saw. I just caught this comment. All right. No, it was yeah. The, not laughing at the Holocaust. I would. I would never. But you see, that's like, hi, contrarians. Please dissect your own mental pathologies. Please understand why you live in the U.S. before you. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Maybe this guy will talk to us. About I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, you know, the, the the you know the first time you and I talked about this, sort of in passing on Colin, you sort of were incredulous that the 
sort of conventional mythologized views of World War II and U.S. entry and stuff were actually that ingrained, at least among knowledgeable people or within even like the literature or uh, that uh, that kind of thing. Um, if anything, I've, I underestimated how ingrained it was. Uh, you know, I have, uh, there's somebody, I'm not going to mention who by name, but there's somebody who for years I have been on very good personal terms with, um, not a personal friend, somebody who I met doing, you know, media-oriented stuff, um, who, you know, was a mutual, had a mutually, you know, friendly, constructive, you know, relationship, you know, mutually, you know, vague, you know generally basically in agreement with one another on, you know, the broad thrust of issues, who, uh, I don't know. I mean, I hope, I hope this is not the final uh, word that this person ever gives me, but it, it does seem like uh, he uh, sort of like renounced me um, because specifically of the whole question around like the Holocaust uh, chronology and the arguments around that that I've uh, put, put forward. Um, and I do think you have to appreciate, um, I almost don't even blame this person that much, although... Wait, who renounced you again? Who was it? Who I don't want to name him? it. I don't want to name the person. But who is it? Like, who is he? Is he a person you know, or what is he? Uh, someone who I, not someone who I met in my own personal, through my own personal life, someone who I met sort of in, uh, through public stuff. Like Twitter, like a Twitter friend? Uh, well, I mean, not, uh, not exclusively. You know, so, somebody who I've engaged with for years on topical, okay. substantive stuff that we both are generally in agreement on. Okay. Um, uh, you know, who, you know, seems to have renounced me. Um, in... How does he renounce you? He says, I apologize for ever uh, having an association with like a... I don't want to, I don't want to go into, I mean, I don't want to go into that great a detail. I'm just saying, okay. I'm just summarizing it by saying he seems to have renounced me, not just, you know, based on what I, he told, uh, the person told me. Um, and, you know, I think you do have to appreciate that for a lot of people, um, the Holocaust in particular, and I'm, again, I, I mean, I shouldn't have to do, do this preface, but I'm going to. I'm not in any sense denying the Holocaust. My entire argument about the Holocaust was predicated on the existence of the Holocaust, um, you know, namely the most lethal phase of the Holocaust where uh, the Nazi Germany instituted the extermination camps in which gas was used to, to murder Jews. Uh, so, I mean, there's, no, there's not even anything remotely cl close to denial of the Holocaust in anything about my argument. It's the polar opposite. Okay, that, that preface aside, you do have to appreciate that, you know, the, the Holocaust gets taught, and so does World War II, but the ho Holocaust maybe even in a more vivid, emotionally sort of intense way to people when they be, when they, uh, starting when they're children, um, uh, you know, when Schindler's List came out in the early 90s, uh, Bill Clinton recommended the movie and recommended that all school children be taught Schindler's List. And I, you know, Schindler's List is a pretty good movie. I mean, I haven't seen it in years, but my recollection is that it's a good movie. Um, but this sort of typical rendering of the chronology of the Holocaust that's presented to vast swaths of Americans uh, I can't really speak of, you know, people in other countries. Um, but that traditional rendering makes no allowance for the kind of chronological, amply sourced presentation that I, I 
been mentioning. Um, and so you can't really blame people in a way for having a, a really visceral, emotional you know, reaction to it. Um, even, even very knowledgeable, rational people will have that um, reaction. Now, I'm not saying that anything I said is not open to reasonable contestation or couldn't be debated or that I'm like metaphysically correct about everything. I'm just talking about like the, the, uh, the emotionalism of how the issue is handled um, you know, speaks to something that's very deep-seated. And so I think that in part explains the, 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 the huge reaction. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, ever, ever, uh, there's a book called The Holocaust Industry. Have you ever read this? Uh, by Norman Finkelstein? Yeah. Uh, you know what, I, I think I, I did, I'm not sure if I read the full book. I read, I'm aware of the argument. I think I read maybe uh, portions of it years ago. Yeah, I mean, Norman Sicklestein, by the way, Jew, you know, he was a, you know, <laughs> he's a, uh, you know, very Jewish, basically, 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 basically a, a, a extremely acidic critic of Israeli policy. That's mostly what he's known for. But yeah, he, I mean, yeah. if you, yeah, if you see him, he's super Jewish in his mannerisms and, yeah. and uh, behavior. Um, and he, um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is what we're raised on in the U.S. I mean, you, in Amer American public schools, I mean, the Holocaust is basically all that we're taught. Um, and it's like, it's not like, and, then, and, and when something gets emotional, it's not like people can reason about it in a, uh, you know, in a, um, in a sophisticated way, right? It's just like, it's bad. The people, like, the people who do this are bad. You fight them, and, like, even, you know, you should have fought them, like, before the Holocaust happened, you know, before it even started, uh, because they were the bad people, and they're evil, and we have to remember um, to always confront evil, and that's, like, the extent of the, you know, lesson you can draw. So World War II, uh, you know, America, I mean, American, the only things that really have, I think, emotion, the, the founding, I don't think, has much emotional re resonance no. as much as World War II. Uh, What's this? Hmm? This, I mean, I was going to say, like, the founding doesn't hold a candle to World War II slash the Holocaust in terms of its, like, mythological significance today. Yeah, yeah. You could, I mean, you could make fun of the founders. I mean, no one's going to, uh, yeah. no one's going to, you know, cancel you for it usually. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I mean, people want to tear down statues of, like, Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves and stuff like yeah do you, do you ever do you ever, do you ever see franklin roosevelt excoriated really except yeah. in like sort of more friend more uh marginals or like maybe right wing yeah that's circles that's a, that's a good point you don't see you don't see like you can go after truman for the bomb right you can go after roosevelt for whatever anti-semitism whatever you could go after um yeah, no, that's it's you know well it's it's all yeah that, that's right. Wilson a little bit I mean there's a little bit going after Woodrow Wilson but that was before, uh, but anyways, uh, you want to talk about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, let's do it. So there, there's a there's an article that uh, you and I both read from the New York Times from uh, yesterday, the 28th, where apparently this uh, working group of some sort, uh, apparently they're called the. Uh, what is the name? The the Ukraine Defense Contract Group contact group with the with which the Pentagon initiated the creation of in February after the uh, invasion. Um, that group, which is basically the top provision officials from uh, NATO countries, uh, militaries, um, in terms of like acquisition and production, um, they met 
this week in uh, Brussels, apparently, and what they discussed, according to the New York Times, was, quote, how their governments can ramp up production of arms and the ammunition. So what is being developed here is a sort of more holistic strategy for accelerating the war economies of the U.S. as well as NATO. Uh, you know, uh, Macron, I think I mentioned this before, but Macron sort of already alluded to this several months ago, I think in May or April um, or June, sometime in the summer, where Macron said that now France is on a war economy footing. People didn't seem to take that statement very seriously. Uh, I did. I don't know why Macron would lie about that. Um, but now it's sort of a more concerted, sort of overarching uh, strategy that the U.S. is taking the lead in sort of systematizing in order to provision Ukraine with more and more armaments. Remember, there's a lend-lease in effect right now with respect to Ukraine on the part of the U.S. Um, and um, the New York Times begins the article with, quote, in a sign that the United States and its allies believe that the fighting in Ukraine will last years. So they're making, they're making plans for years-long fighting or conflict or something. I don't know. And, uh, you know, none of, I don't see very many leftists who used to, at least, I mean, I remember when I first start, became politically conscious as like a semi-autonomous adult and started reading stuff like in the Bush years about the Iraq war. Um, one of the first topics that you would come across if you were of a more critical bent during that period was how you know, the, the military-industrial complex or the, the, the munitions industry or the defense contractors or whatever, the, the primacy of those economic fact, uh, you know, actors and the, in- the incentives that they sort of impinge on the, the, the body politic were incredibly perverse and sort of dragged the country ineluctably toward war. Whereas now, today, 2022, I don't see really much, by the way, by way of critical scrutiny in, on, on this development, which seems even to be more um, consequential than Iraq uh, in the sense that it's this collectivized transformation or you know, acceleration of these uh, economies with the U.S. at the lead, but also you know, NATO, into onto a war footing. Nobody seems to find this, you know, uh, off-putting in the slightest. Yeah, I mean, so every, everything is, I mean, so many things are um, are based on, you know, sort of the partisanship of the time. Like, okay, so Trump is like, you know, anti-immigration, so like immigration becomes sort of a thing. Uh, you know, Trump like denies the results of the election, so deny, denying the election all becomes about, you know, saving democracy, and this is the worst thing in the world, and this is, you know, the thing that's threatening us. So in like the early 2000s, like the Republican was affiliate, you know, the, the main policy that the Republican was associated with was... Um, you know, there was the, the religious right stuff that got attacked a lot, but then also, you know, uh, war. So this was like a thing to be like an anti-war, uh, an anti-war leftist. Um, you know, now that it's like not as clear, it's not clearly, you know, as identified with, you know, Republicans. I think it's become much less of a thing. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think that the um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, the. Uh, Russia sort of looks like the kind of person that the left, you know, th- wouldn't like compared to these, you know, third world, uh, third world countries. I think is a is a is another uh, thing. So, uh, yeah, there's no, um, there is no, the, you know, the anti, you know, the, if if there is an anti-war left, the anti-war sort of portion of the left is 
is the last priority, right? It's like they, political coalitions have priorities, and that's at the very, very bottom. So like AOC, uh, you know, like votes present on Iron Dome, right, and changes their vote from voting against it. Yeah, I mean, it's there on the left, but it's, uh, you know, it's really not there anymore. There's really not a question of it. It's identity issues, and then it's economics, and there's climate change, and if there's any opposition to war, I mean, it's way down uh, near the bottom of the list. Well, it's, I don't even think it's down at the bottom of the list so much as it really just does not exist, or it's been so comprehensively well, stamped like out that squad, it might as well not right? exist. You look at the like you wanted like the purest leftist. If you look at the squad, right? They like well, Bernie Sanders. Well, yeah, Sanders is um, Sanders. I think is uh, yeah, it's not to the it's not as left as they are, uh, but like they'll vote against. I don't know. It depends how you define they'll, it, they'll, but they'll vote against aid to is they'll vote against aid to Israel. Um, I don't know about Ukraine. Maybe Ukraine is a special case where nobody's going to do it, but they'll be against like Afghanistan. So, like the real left is, I think, you know, the, the furthest left people are anti-war. Um, they just they, they don't prioritize. They're not going to raise a stink about it. Well, you know, Bernie Sanders supposedly enlivened this whole thriving socialist or left-wing or you know hyper-progressive movement over the course of two consecutive presidential campaigns and activated this whole segment of political society that was, you know, proudly, unabashedly left-wing, maybe even ideologically socialist, you know, although there was always debate about whether Sanders himself could be reasonably said to be ideologically socialist because it's not like he was calling for, you know, the mass appropriation of private industry or something. But he called himself, he self-described as a democratic socialist. So he was in that vein, right, at the very least. Um, and so, you know, if, and I think, do think if people think, uh, ask themselves, you know, who are the, who's the top, who's the most well-known or prominent uh, left-wing political figure in the United States, probably most of the time they're going to say Bernie Sanders, maybe they'll also say AOC, right? But it's one of the two. And, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders had a more of a, you know, of a uh, far-reaching uh, impact just because he had two presidential campaigns and uh, people sort of formed their political identities uh, around their support of him, especially younger people who supported, you know, who overwhelmingly favored Bernie Sanders, uh, definitely in the 2016 primaries, slightly to a lesser extent, 2020, but even even then, by large margins. And Bernie Sanders, since the Ukraine war started in February, has voted basically in total silence in favor of, for one thing, the massive 40 plus billion dollars war appropriations bill in May. Voted in favor of it. Uh, voted in favor of the uh, accession of Sweden and Finland to NATO in August. And when I say silently, didn't even give a statement explaining his rationale. Didn't get any criticism at all that might compel him to issue sort of a explanatory statement. Um, no pressure whatsoever from within his sort of circle of political influence to to at least even just clarify his positions on these things. Um, so it's been a, you know, this is the supposed tribune of the American, you know, mainstream left who uh, is a full prong of the pro-war uh, apparatus and doesn't even pretend, doesn't even have the pretension of questioning any aspect of it at all. Um, and, you know, so that's just what, that's just what the current situation is vis-a-vis the left and their supposedly uh, their supposed opposition to war. They're not. I mean, they're 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 a prong of the 
of the, uh, you know, sort of aggressively pro-war consensus. Yeah. I mean, but, like, so what? Like, you, you know, you have to say, like, you know, oh, this is the true right and this is the true left. Like, you know, I, I get bored with well, those no. arguments. Well, no. I'm, not, mean, ta- I'm just, not talking about who's true or who's false. I'm just noting sort of descriptively that the factions of American political life that are generally regarded as the left um, are, are part of the pro-war consensus. I'm not even really saying anything to... I'm not really critic. I mean, I guess I could be critical of it, but I'm not even really mentioning that to criticizing. I'm really mentioning it to, like, descriptively observe it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we've, we've observed it. I mean, does it have, you know, important... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what's the what's the bigger implication? Okay, Bernie well, it Sanders shows it, it shows it shows it shows how uh, it, it, I mean it provides one potential explanation for why it is that something that we just talked about, meaning this report that the U.S. is leading this international effort to to bring about the mass conversion into war economies, to, to bring about the mass conversion of the U.S. and other countries into a war economy footing. Why? No one, hardly anyone seems to object or why there's certainly no apparent objections coming from the quote left where they might have come from in the past. So that's part, that's why I mentioned Bernie Sanders, not because I'm that particularly interested in him personally, but because, you know, his uh, attitude or behavior toward these uh, issues of late uh, highlights why it is that something like the mass uh, industrial transformation of economies to a war footing doesn't even get remarked upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're yeah because they're not anti. I mean, they're not they're not that opposed to Ukraine intervention. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's not that's not surprising. And yeah, it has political relevance. I I agree with you. Um, okay, so what do you think about this uh, pipeline explosion issue? I don't know. I mean, people say it's, you know, it's like, I have, I have no idea. I wouldn't even deign to, to guess. I mean, the, it, I mean, the, you know, it's like if the problem with the, I mean, the U.S. It seems like the obvious suspect. Um, it seems like it would be pretty extreme to do that without the sort of Europeans, uh, without the Europeans, uh, like, you know, like to do that in the face of Europe. If Europeans didn't want them to do it and the U.S. did it, I mean, it would be a, quite a flex. Uh, by the Americans, so I don't know. The other theory is, you know, the Russians blew up their own pipeline. Um, you know, which it's not, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense either. You can have a theory that this shows that they can like target infrastructure and make life difficult for Europeans, and they're sort of, you know, just, you know, I think the, you could you could see it as them sending sending a signal that they're, you know, sort of crazy, um, or not that they're crazy, but they're deeply committed to seeing this uh, war through. Um, I don't know. It's very odd. It's it's really odd. I, I really don't know. It's like, are we even getting, like, have you seen, like, I haven't even seen, like, in the media, like, anonymous sources say, you know, that, like, have you seen that? Like, I haven't seen that at all. Like, I would have expected, I haven't like, seen much, been, no. Like, yeah, there would be, like, the New York Times would have an article, and they'd be, like, according to five anonymous sources within the administration, like, you know, we have intelligence, like, high degree of confidence that Putin ordered this. You know, we don't get, we're not getting anything. I think um, I did like see that. one very uh, sort of uh, non-specifically worded denial that the U.S. was, quote, involved. I think it might have been at a Pentagon briefing. I'm not 100% sure on that. I did see some official spokesperson saying something to that effect, but it wasn't like a rousing, yeah. uh, you uh, know, I mean, like disclamation. 
Yeah. So that's odd. I mean, I think if anything, it would make me think that the U.S. didn't do it because I would think they would have a plan to like go out and like leaking all this stuff to the New York Times about you know how somebody else did it. So it seems like maybe the U.S. was taken by surprise and didn't do it. Um, did you see know. the? Um, did you see the this? Uh... Polish member of the European Parliament, yeah, who's the like husband an, of Anne Applebaum, Applebaum, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, former or, or, yeah, former Polish this, yeah, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, like thanking the U.S. for having yeah. committed the attack. I did. It doesn't mean like you know he knew that they did it, right? No, it doesn't mean that. But like, yeah, why did so, he say thank you, USA? I mean, because he assumed the U.S. did. <laughs> I mean, right. like, well, yeah. seemed, like the obvious suspect. Yeah, it doesn't mean. You, you know, know, my initial my initial thought was because. I think I'm not sure what country first said this. I might have been the the Finnish government or maybe the Danish government. Some you're uh, some like Northern European government uh, official uh, that was involved. Sort of like the initial investigation of the incident said that they believe it to have been sabotage, right? Yeah. Uh, And there have been, you know, when we were talking about in the summer those the outbreak of those explosions in Crimea for the first time since the war started, right? In August is when there was those. Mysterious explosions in Crimea that the Ukraine military you know, kind of first half didn't take credit for, and then sort of like trolled and alluded to having taken credit, and then the New York Times reported that they did it. Um, those were sab- those were sabotage style attacks, right? It, there's no. not a whole lot of evidence that the Ukraine military launched airstrikes on those military Russian military ins- installations in in uh, Crimea. They seem to be sabotage style attacks. So you know. Let's say, in theory, I'm not asserting this is true. But let's say, in theory, some sabotage unit within the Ukraine yeah. you know, apparatus did it. I mean, that could give some so, sort of plausible deniability to the U.S. where they could say, no, we weren't involved in yeah. the attack, even if they're subsidizing the whole military. Are you talking you know? about, I mean, you're talking about the Polish MP. I mean, the Pol- Poland and the Baltic countries are also, you know, prime suspects. They're the most hawkish on Russia of anybody right. uh, in Europe. So you can... I mean, that could sort of make sense, right? It could be Ukraine and, and you know, the Baltic countries or, or Poland. I don't know, like, the technical capabilities, like, how hard this is to do. I mean, it's pretty deep in there, right? It's like, do you have to be like, like, could Ukraine do this? I don't know. Uh, they say it's 7,000 feet, you know, uh, low the surface. You do, What do you do? How do you technically blow it up? I, I don't know. Do you need, like, a... Do you place explosives? Like, do you go... I guess, some, I guess somebody placed the pipeline so humans can obviously get down there. So I guess they get down there. They can... You know, I guess it must not be that hard because companies can do it, right? So you figure a country could could potentially get down there and just place a bomb or whatever they do. Uh, so I, that yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, if I had to, yeah, I'm I not had, an expert saboteur. Yeah, yeah, I'm not an expert in you know pipeline construction, but I would, yeah, I would. Guess, if I had to guess, if you just told me you had to pick somebody, I would say it's probably Ukraine or Poland or one of the Russian neighbors. You know, another thing could be a you know a extremist faction and you know russia you know in the yeah. russian government um so yeah we we don't know it's a very puzzling thing and i i wonder how long you know like, remember, we, we should do find out remember we still don't have the, um an explanation for who perpetrated the explosion in moscow or like in a suburb of moscow that killed the Dugan's daughter of Dugan. Daughter. yeah 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 right right uh you know they they uh like, was that also supposedly a Russian false flag? I mean, I guess it's possible, but doesn't seem the most plausible explanation. Yeah, it's uh, the uh, the Russians released like something within like 24 hours or so. Like they said there was they, they had like a they had a uh, like surveillance video of a woman um, who was supposedly some, I don't know, some kind of agent or something. But like, who knows if that's 
Uh, true or not. I think the fact that Russia released that says it has either they're telling the truth or it was they're like that, that narrows the possibilities, right? It's like either they're telling the truth that they found this out or they had a lie ready to be made. And so they're covering right. up for themselves, right? It would like, I think that sort of narrows it. So I think, you know, I think that, that those would be the two working theories for now. Yeah. Um, yeah, the annexation. Yeah, I was just going to ask like, you, like, what do you what do you see happening with the annexation? Uh, just like factually, anything that I might have missed, like, what's the status of that? So it's going to happen tomorrow, apparently, uh, or like today in in Moscow. Um, right. The Putin's going to give a speech, and they're going to officially welcome these four regions. I've seen contradictory uh, news stories about like these uh, referenda, um, these referendums, like whether they apply to like the entire uh, province in each case or, or not, or like whether it's uh, unclear. Um, and it's like very weird for them to annex territory that they don't control. Uh, but it's clear, you know, it's clearly a, um, you know, it's clearly a signal that, uh, uh, you know, it's clear, I mean, it's clearly a signal that they're not going to give up anytime soon. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, laugh it up. Forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, one 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 uh, final point, then we'll go to callers. Um, but a comment that I haven't seen get much circulation, predictably, in U.S. media, despite its significance, um, was from Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, um, long time now Russian foreign minister. I think he's been the foreign minister since something like 2004 or something, a long time. Um, he was at the uh, UN in New York City this past week. You know, there was a general assembly meeting, uh, the yearly meeting, and uh, Sergey Lavrov on Saturday of last week. So last Saturday, I think it was the twenty third, twenty uh, fourth, or something. Um, he gave a press availability where he said that legally speaking, so not he wasn't giving like a personal opinion. Uh, he wasn't giving like a normative statement necessarily, uh, at least per what he was actually saying. Um, and he repeated this both in English and Russian. Um, Russia, the Russian Federation regards legally the United States to be a participant in the war. So, they say that. What is what Lavrov gave? Is Lavrov gave a whole. Yeah, what practice Lavrov does gave that mean? Well, well, because, you know, Lavrov gave a whole rationale about how the United States cannot conceivably claim to have neutral status, right? It violated international, this, uh, its, its involvement violated international law, or at least made it so that it could not be legally considered to be a neutral party, which, practically speaking, <coughs> based on what I gather, and again, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong or tell me if I'm misinterpreting this, but what Lavrov seemed to be doing was building a legal argument for Russia militarily retaliating against U.S. targets. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be happening imminently. I don't know. I'm saying they, they've, they've built an argument that would give a legal justification to it because they're saying that the U.S. is a party in the war. So given that it's a par- participant in the war, then its military installations are open to attack, right? Um, and you know, quickly on, on, the, on the World War II stuff, Throughout 1941, contemporaneous critics were um, attacking Roosevelt for doing what they said made the U.S. a participant in the war, like a co-belligerent, and therefore open to military reprisal from Russia, from uh, Germany uh, or Japan. 
And that was, that was part of the systematic deception that it was denied that the U.S. actually was a participant in the war when it, when it clearly was. Um, you know, the military affairs editor of the New York Times said that the U.S. officially entered the war, in the Second World War, in July of 1941 when Roosevelt ordered that secret U.S. military occupation of Poland and deployed an expeditionary convoy to an active German war zone. So now the, the Lavrov is saying that the same legal status, supposedly, or you know, a comparable or analogous legal status, per the lights of Russia, applies to the U.S. now vis-a-vis um, Ukraine. So does that mean that they're actually in practice and in fact uh, preparing to launch a strike of some sort on the U.S.? I don't know. What I do know is that that guy, Dmitry Trenin, who previously had been one of the most sort of mainstream Russian think tank types in that he was the head of the, Carne- the, uh, the affiliate of the Carnegie Center, for the, uh, which is a U.S. think tank in Moscow. He had originally worked in D.C., then he opened the branch of the Carnegie Center in Moscow. Generally had been, you know, more liberal or more sort of Western tolerant or even favorable. Uh, Even he, just in the past week, put out a warning that the only option of Russia in order to instill fear in the U.S. at this point over Ukraine uh, might be to launch a nuclear strike on the U.S. (laughs) Now, again, I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if it's even feasible. All I know is that's what this guy who's an influential figure, said, and I know that in tandem with that, Lavrov, the foreign minister, put forth a legal justification for why Russia would regard retaliatory strikes against U.S. targets to be, to be legal. And the thing about these things, don't they say this stuff all the time, though? I mean, don't, haven't they talked about nuclear weapons a lot? And haven't they talked about... Well, like the, I, that doesn't sound like the first time I've heard that U.S. chose the... I don't think, you know, like, you know, who knows, but I don't think that, you know, Russia has its hands full, you know, as is with, with the Ukrainian uh, war. Um, there's still, you know, escalation options for the U.S. The, you know, the U.S. could be providing tanks to Ukraine. They could give them uh, uh, missiles that could reach further. I mean, like, if you hit the U.S., you're going to get the tanks, you know, they forget about, like, uh, a direct strike by the U.S. I mean, you'll get full escalation, you'll get uh, tanks given to Ukraine, they'll give, they'll give, you know, all the missiles in the arsenal. Um, so, you know, I, they, they, I mean, they talk a lot. I don't know if they have much credibility at this point. I'm sure they say this stuff all the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm not really assigning credibility to the statements. I'm just observing the statements. I don't recall having heard statements as direct as that before. Maybe they've been made and I'm not privy to them. I don't know. Um, I, what... All I do, what I do know is it seems like a fairly ominous uh, confluence of events, whatever happens. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is ominous. I mean, I think, you know, direct combat between the U.S. and Russia, unlikely, but, you know, very bad war for a very long time. Russia is not going to annex these territories and then leave. Uh, Ukraine not going to give up anytime soon. So, yeah, I mean, I would be, like, surprised if this thing ended, like, within a year or two. I mean, this is going to be sort of, this is going to be a very long-term thing. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's go to callers. Jenny, you're up. Hey, Michael and Richard. Hey, Jenny. There's a video going around Twitter of Victoria Newland from January, and I shared the link in the chat. And she threatened Russia and said, you know, you you invade Ukraine, there will be no Nord Stream 2 pipeline and a pretty ominous threat. And then there's another video of Joe Biden pretty much saying the same thing during an interview with some journalists. 
And yeah, well, I, I, I retweeted that Biden video um, from February, I think it was, where he said, you know, basically the Nord, if Russia invades, the Nord Stream pipeline will be no more. Badia Benjamin of Code Pink, who probably has the most street cred as an anti-war activist ever, wrote a piece about Victoria Newland about that same time in January, and it showed up in Salon. I shared the link to that as well, because she really ties everything together really well in terms of her role in the 2014 situation in Ukraine. And um, per your comment about so many people going silent during certain presidencies, there is some hypocrisy in the anti-war left that they do tend to be very quiet when wars are waged by Democrat presidents. And this time is no different. And I, I listened to your interaction with that Jonathan Katz on Sunday, Michael. I got the last two hours of your four-hour <laughs> juggernaut. And yeah. um, props to you because you're so willing to kind of stand alone while the right and the left is kind of throwing rocks at your head. And I Well, I mean, the re- I mean, I've been talking about the left, but you're right. I mean, the right, the right I regard to be largely useless and ridiculous as, as well. So none of my criticism or none of my like, critical commentary on the left should be taken as some sort of defense of the right, even in relativistic terms. I don't, I wouldn't make that defense for a minute. Well, my point is that the journalist class right now has come out so pro-war, pro-Ukraine, that I really think they're going to end up with egg on their faces because they just did this kind of jump to that posture without really thinking it through. I mean, I, right. I, I don't know how they can even call themselves journalists at this point. And, and as for the history professors, it sounds like they've got their tropes and they're sticking to them. And anybody who messes with them, you know, someone like you, you little upstart journalist, how dare you? You know, it's <laughs> actually kind of funny to watch because, you know, there's different interpretations and then there's the facts. And so I see you really going for the facts in the history and in what's happening right now with Ukraine. And the facts will, will save us. The truth will save us. And so if there is escalation right now in various places, getting on a war footing, we should all be screaming bloody murder. You know, we don't want this to escalate. We do want it tapped down. We want to fix it. And so continue on, my brother Michael. And, and Richard, <laughs> I haven't read your work as much as Michael's, but, you know, we have to speak out loudly against this. Yeah, well, I'm doing what I can. You know what? Uh, indirectly, a couple of days ago, I uh, caused uh, Chris Hayes, the MSNBC host, um, who I actually knew back when he was just the Washington editor of The Nation, you know, a little bit, not great, but, you know, knew him, um, but is now, you know, in a cocoon, uh, seemingly, at uh, MSNBC, so that would be impenetrable to me. Um, but, you know, he's a, he's an actual journalist. I remember her, uh, that's how he started, you know, wrote tons for the nation, reported as a, as a journalist, not just a pure pundit, right? Became a TV pundit as an outgrowth of his actual journalism. Uh, and so has a foundation of what I would think would be, have to be some like rationality uh, on these subjects. And a couple of days ago, um, I'm sorry to recount Twitter stuff, but this is actually significant. Uh, this guy, uh, Matt Iglesias, said something a bit flippant, but, you know, true, which is that, you know, it seems like people aren't that concerned about what seems like the uh, heightened risk of nuclear war. Um, and this, like, I don't know, left-wing New York influencer said what legions of people said in response to this, which was, like, what do you want me to do? Meaning they're totally powerless to do anything to advocate for the reduction of the risk of nuclear destruction as though 
That had not been a central activist objective of the organized American liberal left for decades. I mean, I've, been, I've pointed out uh, this week, but I pointed out even before, months ago, that the largest protest in New York City history up until that point, so New York City, like basically ground zero for active uh, protest movements, right? Or one of them anyway. Um, the largest protest in New York City history up until that point was in 1982. It was a no-nukes protest. I mean, it was against the buildup of the nu- of US, the U.S. nuclear arsenal on the grounds that it increased the risk of nuclear war. But now, you know, these activists and influencers or stuff are at a loss. They're clueless as to what they could possibly do to encourage the U.S. government to mitigate the risk of nuclear annihilation. Meanwhile, at the drop of a hat, if there's even the most abstract grievance they can come up with, something related to personal identity, you know, whether racial or gender or what have you, I mean, they can spring into ferocious protest action and it could sweep the nation like overnight. But all of a sudden on this issue, you know, that actually is quote unquote existential in the sense that, you know, it can result in the annihilation. Um, they're they're totally um, oddly to, to, totally totally at a loss. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank but, you, you know, so but, much but, for but my me. comment on that, I, what I wanted to say was that my comment on that was seen by somebody who was then, which was then seen by Chris Hayes, who then Chris Hayes said, you know, he didn't even express this as his own personal belief. But he said that you know, if one wanted to ad- advocate for the reduction of nuclear risk, one thing one could do, and he was like doing sort of several degrees of remove from it, which you know, fair. Uh, but he said that one thing one could do is advocate for the cessation of the provision of arms to Ukraine. But even Chris Hayes, like, floating that as not something that he was endorsed, but just spelling out as a possible argument, that create, created a giant firestorm, which, you know, originated in a way from me indirectly, you know, where Chris Hayes was being ruthlessly denounced as an appeaser, as pro-Putin, etc. Gary Kasparov was, you know, fulminating the whole cast of characters that are normally associated with the most hawkish stance on this. We're, 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 we're making we're an anti-war point, or was he just saying something, uh, um, something else? Not, not, not directly. Not for, not personally, was he making an anti-war point? He simply uh, proposed that if what one wanted to do was advocate to the U.S. government that the risk of nuclear war be reduced, be, be reduced rather, uh, one thing that they could do is advocate for the cessation of U.S. arms to Ukraine. Um, so he wasn't even stating that as what he personally favored. He was just stating it as like an option that could be utilized. But, if, but you know, even that was enough to provoke like a giant tsunami of hatred and condemnation. Yeah, it's a really interesting time. The, uh, the sides are... It's, the sides that people are choosing to support are what is really interesting to me. You know, you have your neocon left that do not understand that their, their positions are the exact same positions of the neocon right during the beginnings of Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, I don't know what neocon left or right even is anymore. I mean, all the most hardcore Trump people claim that they loathe neocons, even if they're basically much of the time in um, synchronicity with what the so-so-as neocons think and believe. Like, they'll say that John Bolton was this horrible interloper that should, never should have been in the Trump administration. Meanwhile, I don't see 
much of the time, maybe on some issues occasionally. But like generally, I don't see a whole lot of substantive disagreement between the supposed anti-neocons and John Bolton. I remember them being in a state of euphoria when Trump um, bombed, uh, you know, when Trump drone assassinated Soleimani, which is something that uh, John Bolton had long advocated within the administration. So, I mean, I, these, these, these labels seem to be just more or less meaningless. Well, I follow lefty Twitter journalism pretty closely. And during the four years of the Trump administration, according to them, he started World War III like eight times. Here comes World War III, sure. and they were just bound, pounding those drums of war, war, sure. war drums, you know. And now they've gone so quiet, and it's just, to me, it's the tell. So no, you're right. You so you're much right. For taking my call. You're welcome. All right, thanks, Jenny. Let's go to uh, CR. Hey, Michael. Hey, Richard. How you guys? Hey. Hey. Uh, I uh, hate to be that kind of like fly in the oil, so to speak, but I need to start off by trying at least my attempt to assert a correction here. There's a okay. huge conflation that's happening right now in this discussion for like the last half hour of Democrat and left, liberal and right. leftist. They are not, Democrats are not left. They are center right. We know this by how they vote. And you said as much when you referred to like AOC voting for the Iron Dome, more Capitol Police, et cetera, et cetera. So the voting record matters, not what they fucking post on Twitter, not what people say that they are. People say all the time that AOC is a radical leftist. She is fucking not. She's a Democrat. Okay, and she is not on the left based on her voting record. I don't give a fuck what she says. I give a record fuck is what relative she votes to other people, and doesn't. her voting record is relative to other people in Congress, not relative to what you would like. Ideally, right? How do you? Uh, there's no, 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 no. I say, I say, like, what, what, what we, what we all agree on are actual leftist ideals. Which you're, which the other caller was just previously alluding to. The left is anti-war, and yes, the left is anti-war. But what you guys are referring to, the left being silent on it, it's just completely wrong. If you actually listen to any real leftist voices that have always been the same on policy, on policy, not on personal bullshit, not on identity politics, on actual policy and class struggle, which is actual leftist ideals, not this fucking, not this personal bullshit of identity. That's yeah. that's that's liberal bullshit. Liberals haven't been fucking left since the fucking Reagan administration. And if you want to be generous, since at least Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton definitely dragged the Democrats from being center to center right. We all know this. You know what I mean? I can go okay. on and on about the yeah, things yeah. Can that I, happened under Bill Clinton. Yeah. Can I can I respond to that? And you can you can continue um, after I make a quick point. So AOC is a self-described democratic socialist. She, well, I mean, let me, let me finish. She, she is a self-described democratic socialist. She entered elective office on the strength of the endorsement of the democratic socialists of America, um, which organized to uh, ensure her victory in the 2018 primary election against Joe Crowley in, in Queen, the Bronx. That's how she came to enter Congress. Uh, Bernie Sanders, is seen as, is a self-described democratic socialist. The Democratic Socialists of America uh, was a huge organizing force in um, partially his 2016 campaign, but most certainly once it had matured in its membership, 
after you know, between 2016 and 2020, most certainly was the DSA a huge organizing force in 2020. I met many DSA people organizing for Bernie when I was covering the campaign all throughout New Hampshire and so forth. Um, now, those are two people who identify as on the left. Now, I'm not saying that – like if, if Hitler identified himself as pro-Jew, I'm not going to go with Hitler's explanation – simply because he says he's pro-Jew, right? We can use our critical faculties to evaluate whether people's self-descriptions are defensible. However, uh, you know, given the fluidity of ideological self-designation um, and given like the uh, imprecision of it and the amorphousness of it, uh, for my purposes, what I tend to do is take people at their word when they self-describe them uh, ideologically. And Bernie Sanders and AOC describe themselves as being on the left. When you say the, when you say the left is quote it left is anti-war, as if that's just a definitive thing. Like in a in a state of suspended animation, the left is always like intrinsically anti-war. You know that's not that's really not true. I mean, and, and I'm sorry to keep going back to World War II. That's what hold, hold defines on. the left largely. Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, it really. I mean, it it, it, it really does. I would, there was I a would huge, argue. There was a huge left wing movement. Also a liberal movement, but also like bonafide leftists, like a faction of the Socialist Party that hated Norman Thomas, hated his anti-interventionism pre-World War, uh, pre-Pearl Harbor. Um, definitely when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in June of 1941, the Communist Party, I don't know if you consider them on the left or not, I think the Communists are pretty uh, typically considered to be on the left of the, of the political spectrum. They were some of the most vociferous proponents of full-fledged U.S. entry into the war, you know, in service of aiding the Soviet Union. So when you say that, like, the, like the, the left, quote-unquote, as this abstract designation is always and everywhere oh, no, intrinsically it was, it was, it was anti-war, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's the, modern, the modern American, the modern, the modern American left, if you talk to actual leftists, you know, that engage in, in you know, groundwork, mutual aid, volunteering, blah, 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 so on and so forth, you know, people that put their money where their mouth is, when they get elected, they vote as such, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, you can count these people in these brackets for the Amer- – I only know Amer- – I can't speak for the rest of the world's politics, right? I can only – Well, I'm talking about the American know, Communist Party and American Socialists, you know, in the 40s. Sure, sure, sure. But, I mean, again, you, you, cite, you cite Bernie there as we should take him at his word for it. Well, then why not take him at his word for it in the 90s when he was sheep herding the left – into the Democratic Party. And we're talking about after Bill Clinton passed NAFTA, Bernie campaigned for Bill Clinton, okay? Right. So it is after that that Bill Clinton had already done real harm to the working class and, 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 and to, you know, to, the, to the, uh, the, the American working people, you still had somebody that was professed to be on their side that was pushing people into a party that is working against them and has worked against them for a very long period of time. So I don't, I don't buy – like Bernie can say whatever the fuck he wants to say that he is, but since the 90s, he has been sheep herding people into the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. Taking CR, leftist CR, energy, I, think, I think what you're – You know, so taking leftist offering... energy and funneling it into the Democratic Party. So what I'm just saying yeah, yeah. is I know labels – labels are generally not good in terms of like how we can define you know, what is socialist, what is communist. If you bring up those other people that have been pro-imperialism, pro-war in the past. What I'm saying is in terms of how we look at the political perspective uh, or uh, 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 spectrum today – right now as it exists in our country that the generally the people that are truly on the left vote as such and 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 do activism as such and don't just say don't pay lip service to that until they get into office and then go along with the duality yeah. i got i got it i got yes cr so i think you know what, what you're saying there what, yeah yeah so i think what you seem to be doing is offering what is 
what strikes me as a plausible or reasonable like normative critique of Bernie Sanders or AOC, right? You're saying that you basically disagree sure. with them, you disagree with their tactics, you think that their philosophy in relation to, you know, their role their in the Democratic record, Party is wrong, is wrong-headed. Yeah, you're, you're criticizing Democrat. their voting record, you're criticizing their voting record, but I don't think any of your normative criticisms there, as plausible or reasonable as they may be, undermines the validity of calling them on the left. That's just what they self-describe as. So you can, there could be a leftist. There could be a leftist who does stuff that you disagree with and you can criticize, right? But that doesn't make them somehow not intrinsically a leftist. Well, I just, I mean, well, you, the, as the previous caller was saying that, they're, they're, oh, they're largely silent. And I, it's or, just the or, exact opposite. When, when the, the type of people that I follow and I listen to and whatnot, they have been vocal since the very beginning of this Ukraine war and being against it and, be, you know, against all of these types of wars. So to say that the do you have an example? is being, yeah, like RBN is a perfect example, Revolutionary Blackout Network, Jimmy Dore, okay. so on and so forth. There are other people that are on the left. Well, people, I mean, plenty leftist. of people, I mean, I, don't, I probably don't have to tell you that a lot of people hate Jimmy, a lot of people who self-describe as being on the left hate Jimmy Dore and denounce the idea that he could be considered as on the left. They say he, Jimmy Dore is not a leftist. So you get into this endless nomenclatural sort of back and forth. Sure, but does he, does, he all, does he always advocate for class salute? Does he always advocate for anti-war? Does he always advocate for Medicare for all? Does he always advocate pro-free uh, speech, anti-censorship? I mean, those are the hallmarks right there. Anti-war. Well, no, I mean, they're really not a hallmark. I mean, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's, a school of, there's a school of thought. I mean, I don't, not to get too, too deep into the theory, I don't really claim to be an expert on it either. But in the, in the 1960s, this new left emerges, and there are strains of thought within the supposed new left that explicitly de-emphasize the primacy of class relations in favor of something more like uh, identity or something more like, um, you know... Uh, self-realization uh, re- or individualism. In other words, a strain of yeah. the left emerged that explicitly disassociated itself from the more more classically Marxist conception of class struggle as the prime mover of all human relations and of all, uh, you, know, or, uh, you know, leftist organizing. So, I mean, there are, and I, I think it would be, you'd be hard-pressed to say that members of the new left from that period, just because they subscribe to a certain school of thought, could not actually be said to be, quote, on the left, they could just be leftists who you disagree with. Yeah, well, I, 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 would, I would then argue that the modern American left is definitely largely anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist. And I think that those are, you know, well, two, two... I don't see that. <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That, that, yeah, thank you. No, that, that's good, because this, is, this is, illustrates my point. My point is, is those that are allowed to label themselves as being on the left when they always vote center right so to me that's what that was i guess my niche and i didn't even mean to get off i just meant just like as, as a short correction in the original that yeah. people often conflate democrats and the left and liberal and the left now there are is in the venn diagram because well, right, some some democrats self-conflate in that they don't perceive that there, there to be any contradiction between being a leftist and being a democrat they think that they're total that's totally that, that that's total totally consistent um and you know and you could disagree with their belief that that's consistent but it doesn't make sure. them any I mean, less would of you, 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 would, you would disagree that there's more than a hundred progressives in the co- in the progressive caucus right I, of those no i, I would I, you know what i actually wouldn't i mean think... that's the way they self-describe you know so but there's a lot of progressives there's a lot that's of there's a lot of vote. self-described there's a lot of self-described progressives that i would disagree with yeah but just i like consider like self-described conservatives if i if i if i i could say that i'm a saint all day if i sin 
right in front of you, you're going to tell me that you're no saint. That's just how it works. And that's what I'm saying. These people can claim that they're progressives all they want. Their voting record says otherwise. Their voting record says that they're corporatists and says that they are center right. You know what I mean? That they are not anywhere near the political, that end of the political spectrum. So I, I, I think a, a conflation you know, that goes well, on. Well, but it's their own conflation. I'm simply re- reacting to sure. what their own self-conflation is. And I think you're, you, you can fall into a trap of like, I don't mean to say this to be accusatory at all, but I think you know the way you're formulating it, you're saying you're sort of using the term center right just to mean bad, or just to mean oh, no, what no, you no, disagree no. with. Well, yeah, I mean, because like there could be hold on, I mean, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Like in theory, there could be a, there could be somebody on the center right who agrees with you on Ukraine, right? Does that make them not center right if they agree with the supposed leftist position on Ukraine? Oh no, not at all. I'm I'm willing to take that's the thing. If people that are on the far right. That people often claim, oh, this person's MAGA, this person's a far right, this person's alt right. Hey, man, if we if we agree on unions, if we agree on being anti-war, I'm with you on that. We can fight on all the other identity politic bullshit later on that they want to use to divide us. Because that's just a divisive tactic by the controlling party, by the people that are actually in power. For us as like functional American individuals engaging in a rigged system, we have to find allies wherever we can. Of course, frenemies are always a thing, and I would never look at somebody that way at all. That's why I don't buy this, this, you know, this kind of bullshit where people, red-brown alliance, horseshoe theory. Like, who the fuck cares? If you're anti-war and you're going to vote anti-war, you I know, but I guess, you know, but the point I'm making, though, is you seem to believe that being anti-imperialist or anti-war is, an, is like a prerequisite for being on the left. Like, to be left is to be anti-war or anti-imperialist, right? But if somebody on the center-right or the far right or wherever espouses anti-imperialistic or anti-war views, then doesn't that contradict what you said? Because they're not no, on no, the no, left, no. and yet they're supporting what you're saying is an intrinsic principle that's, of the left. That's fine. That's fine. Because we're going to argue then later about capitalism and why capitalism is bad. And we're going to, they're going to say, oh, China's evil. And I'm going to say, no, China's not evil. But those are arguments for another day. If they all want to vote on health care with me, then I would say, go ahead and come on, brother. You can be conservative. Got it. You can be, you can be alt-right. You can be MAGA and have those things. For me, like I said, you're, I guess I should have probably agreed with you in the very beginning that the labels really are kind of useless to a certain extent. I no, no, I got you. No, I think it's sort just, of interesting to, to flesh this out. Did you have a, a, a larger point you wanted to make quickly? Yeah, no. A, <laughs> that's what I said. Yeah, like, I was actually, yeah, yeah. I was actually going to, I was actually make another point about World War II. And this was just my yeah, little yeah. tidbit of just saying that I just okay. hate when Democrats are considered left, but I'll just, I'll really quickly say that I think that uh, uh, you're largely right. And in confronting these revisionists, you know what I mean? Because uh, for me, I grew up with the same thing. America just strolled in there and won the war. And it was like, oh, never mind those 25 million plus dead Russia or you know, Soviet Union, you know, people. That doesn't matter. They didn't win the war. America won the war. And I grew up believing that, you know what I mean, till college age, that it right. was just like it was just intrinsically beaten into us. And I think that the one thing that's missing often from this argument is these people, they just immediately jump to like, oh, well, so you're saying it was a bad thing to fight Hitler. It's like right. Nobody's saying it was a fucking bad thing to fight Hitler, but stop fucking pretending like we rode in on a fucking on a big white horse and saved the fucking day. You know what I mean? We got in as, as a forced, coerced and reluctantly and late as possible. And we came out the fucking winners. I went those the smoke cleared. So I, to me, I just I, I, I do appreciate that you are hammering down on the, 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 the historical points and yeah. reminding people that, you know, what you think of later is like this big moral victory 
for the United States, this time that where we stood up against evil, is actually a fucking gross oversimplification at best, and a just completely distorted view of what actually happened in history. I just don't. Why is that brought up? Why don't you bring up like the, 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 the you know that side of it, like the Russian? Right, right. Really well, you know, if I war. if I want if I wanted to get down on the level of people who sort of reflexively always bring the discussion back to this demand that I make a black or white moral judgment, you know, and say <laughs> yeah, something right. like, you know, retroactively, um, it was quote unquote good in like metaphysical absolutist sense for the US right. to have fought Nazi Germany. If I wanted to really get down on their level, and I don't because I I, I, I deny I, I reject the validity of this sort of retroactive counterfactual uh, moral uh, uh, moral sort of protestation um i would say well does that mean quote you think it's good or you support the u.s having empowered stalin um with over a trillion dollars in armaments per today's dollars and um fortified his capacity to conquer much of the earth and impose incredible human death and suffering and, and tyranny are you saying you support that that was quote good you know, I wouldn't put I wouldn't put that question to them because, you know, again, I don't I don't accept the premise of those questions as valid. Uh, but if I wanted to, that's what I would do, and I'm sure they wouldn't answer that question directly. They would find they would you know repair to all kinds of roundabout rationalizations, uh, which it gets to the folly of the question in the first place. Anyway, thanks, Cr. Uh, Want to move on? Sure. Good time, Mike. Andrew. Yep, Andrew. Hello. Hello, sirs. Uh, I don't want to belabor the last conversation, but I just want to make one point about it, that there's the institutional left, and then there's, I don't know, activist or online left. I'm sure you can find plenty of anti-war online leftists, but in terms of the institutional left, I don't know what mutual aid he's involved with, and he's not in Congress, but I'm pretty sure Noam Chomsky is regarded as the institutional left uh, like uh, a thought leader at, at the very least. So, and he's pretty pro-war right now. If you consider advocating the U.S. keep arming Ukraine a pro-war position. So, I mean, well, you know, I had a I had a week-long email exchange with Chomsky um, on this about a month ago. Um, you know, meaning so multiple emails daily for weeks uh, for for about a week back and forth. But it was, you know, it was a useful exchange for to for me to have initiated. I thought, um, and you know, as always, you got to commend the guy for at uh, you know what is he ninety two or ninety one, still being so hyper diligent about responding to any schmuck who emails him. Um, it's pretty incredible. Uh, but nonetheless, I can report that yeah, Chomsky favors the provision of arms to Ukraine without limitation. Um, the only difference between him and sort of the mainstream position on that is that Chomsky will make a point to emphasize um, that the provision of arms should be coupled with a drastically right. greater emphasis on trying to seek some diplomatic negotiation solution. And the, what, I, what I asked him was, isn't this sort of like an inher inherently contradictory because like if you're saying that well, it's delusion. you're so desperate well uh, well i asked him like if you're so insistent and adamant that a diplomatic resolution be obtained isn't simultaneously supporting the provision of arms 
contradictory to that because uh, because what seems to be happening demonstrably is that the provision of arms has made or has contributed to the lessening over time of the likelihood that any kind of diplomatic settlement can be reached to the point where now it seems to have been totally obliterated. I mean, the, I, I don't disagree with the position that there needs to be a diplomatic effort. Obviously, that's correct. So he's correct in that. But the it, what I'm saying, it's delusional. I'm saying the administration is actively working against that, and I think he acknowledges this. And I, I don't understand what what what's going to change that? Can you also, by the way, Michael, uh, to be a pest? Could you bring Richard back up as a speaker? Yeah, yeah, Richard. Do you, I think you might have mistakenly knock yourself down to the queue. I just invited. He's in you the speak. collar line. I don't know. What yeah, yeah. I. Mean, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, I've invited. I I, I, like, I, yeah, Richard. I invited you to speak, so you should, be, you should be able to come back. I think. Every time I call in for the last couple times, some kind of weird yeah, voodoo happens with the speaker stuff. I feel like I'm. I cursed. thought they fixed the app where we wouldn't have this error anymore. Anyway. No, uh, I'm just. Careless. It's it's my fault. Okay. So yeah. can I uh, actually ask my question now? Because that yeah, last yeah. conversation yeah, go ahead. was so interesting. But uh, um, the Nord Stream thing. Um, do you think that there's going to be retaliation, or if the lack of retaliation indicates, or retaliation would indicate culpability? It seems to me we're never going to know what happened here, and. Uh, I kind of liked Richard's idea of that if it's America doing this with Europe being notified, to me it seems like they've kind of given the European politicians an out and they don't have to make a hard choice anymore on whether or not they're going to ease up on Russia because the decision's been made for them. So it seems to benefit European politicians if in, in the instance that the U.S. insists they continue in a certain way and they've taken the position away from them. The, the public can't really blame them. But it seems like I mean, this is an international act of terrorism. It's an act of state sabotage on civilian infrastructure. How could there not be some kind of retaliation one way or another? It seems that would be the case, but maybe that's wrong. Oh, it's so weird. You know, even the Russians, um, like their statement wasn't even aggressive. Even the Russians were not like, this is, you know, the Westerners. They said, you know, the Peskov uh, spoke to it and said, Something like you know, you know, all you know, it could be anybody we don't know, and so the U.S. doesn't have a narrative. The right, you know, it makes me think these Eastern European countries are the only real suspects. But who knows? That idea is good too. That it's like taking away the choice from the Europeans, but you have to coordinate that among different European countries. I, you know, I don't know. Like, yeah, I guess that's so. Makes it's sense. so unusual. Well, well, you know, when what's the precedent uh, for this? Well, you know, when when those sabotage-style attacks first broke out in Crimea in August, the response by Russia was always was also a bit oddly muted. Like, they didn't declare that this was this gigantic, unforgivable act of war or anything. They kind of but, almost but that, changed the subject, right? Because they, they, yeah. wanted, they, wanted to, they didn't want to seem like they could be hit by uh, Ukraine, right? Right. Uh, for You'd this think they'd one, be more upset about this. It's taking away their leverage. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, if if the incident, if whatever happened to the pipeline was man-made, in that some human took some action to cause the incident, yeah, um, by all accounts, that's some that's governments, are which by all accounts seems to have been the case, right? They're, they've ruled out earthquakes. They said it was sabotage. Yeah. So somebody somewhere on Earth has got to know, right? What happened? And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out. I wouldn't rule out that at some point we will. Yeah, somebody no, else interested. Will, someone yeah. will brag about it, or yeah, want to you know claim it at some point. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, 
Even if it's 80 years later when, you know, the equivalent of me on Substack is doing, you know, uh, is doing a revisionist history of the Ukraine war. <laughs> well, and maybe that's something to look out for, people bragging, saying thank you, the United States. Maybe they had uh, okayed from the United States, like, thank you for letting us do this. I don't know. But, Speaking of uh, revisionism, Richard, I mean, tell me this. If let's, – let's, let's stipulate hypothetically – War uh, between the U.S. and Russia breaks out tomorrow. Russia launches a preemptive attack on the United States. We're in World War III or something approximating it. Um, do you think that anybody who mentions any event which led up to that point or could have contributed to this escalatory spiral that culminated in Russia launching a preemptive strike on the United States, do you think anybody who mentions those preceding events of the kind that you and I have been talking about for months um, in the future, it would be labeled a revisionist because they talk because they talk about stuff other than the one snapshot of time where Russia launched the preemptive strike. No, I mean, of course, of course not. Russia would be, yeah, I mean, Russia would be remembered as Hitler. But you know, I, I'm trying to think. Maybe you know, can I imagine the can I imagine the opposite scenario? I mean, a nuclear strike. I, you know, I don't know. The politics would be sort of scrambled. You know, in a way, you could maybe argue that people would uh you know would maybe you know be a little more reflective because like even world war ii you know didn't result in you know devastating strikes on the american uh mainland right um besides you know pearl harbor was the only strike on uh uh you know the american territories and stuff but yeah i think this is uh yeah i think that uh no i think you're right it would probably be it would probably be the exact same, the exact same thing as this it would be taken as further proof of the evils of russia right which is hardwired uh, we're just hardwired in wartime and tough times to just sort of listen to what the government says, and you know, time if history provides one lesson, uh, that's that's clearly it. That's why you know I'm surprised we think the Russians are, you know, are so different. Like the Russian government is going to collapse, you know, because people are against the war. I don't know, maybe. Uh, we have no idea what public opinion is in Russia. You know, I read these articles and they're like, oh, you know, everyone hates the draft, everyone hates Putin. Um, you know, nobody really believes the propaganda. And I'm like, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe American propaganda is just like so much better than Russian propaganda and like American propaganda can even reach Russians and like Russians own government, you know, can't reach uh, Russians themselves. But really, we have no idea. I mean, you see these people, we see like Russians fleeing, uh, you know, Russians fleeing their country, but like Ukrainians wanted, a lot of Ukrainians wanted to leave their country too. They did the men, the men right. were uh, not allowed to leave, and we didn't get yeah, like they a were lot stopped of, by I force. Saw, yeah, yeah, I saw a few. I saw a few. Like I saw a New York Times or Washington Post podcast about one guy who really didn't want to fight the war. But generally, I mean, you know, there was no, there was very few like sob stories uh, about about these people and, and their plight. Um, so yeah, I mean, people. people yeah, I mean, when I was in, when I was in when I was in Poland last March, I don't know if I ever talked to you about this, Richard, but I went to like you know these dis, these huge processing centers on the Polish border with Ukraine for displaced people uh, who had just fled. It was it was it was overwhelmingly uh, women and children, you know, a smattering of like elderly men, um, but overwhelmingly women and children. And uh, I talked to a bunch of them, and I did you know substacks on it and stuff, and like. It really is, you know, heart-rending, which is why I kind of, I mean, I can't get too overly offended by what I'm accused of doing online, uh, but, like, you can't have talked to those people and understood, like, their circumstances and their lack of culpability for how their life had been upended and uh, not appreciate, like, the humanitarian toll. Um, So, yeah, um, 
yeah. Uh, sorry if I'm trailing off here. Uh, so, yeah. and I, yeah, uh, I, by the way, Andrew, yeah. I didn't mean, I didn't, by the way, Andrew, I didn't mean to cut you off prematurely. So, yeah, go go ahead, Richard. Uh, yeah, I mean, from our perspective, we look at it like, oh, Russia, like a Russian soldier, like fighting, it's like doing some evil thing, and a Ukrainian soldier fighting is doing some heroic thing. I mean, from the guy who doesn't want anything to do with the worst perspective, right? The, the, it's the same thing. These men are coming and taking you and forcing you to pick up a gun and shoot other people uh, for a cause you don't care about or you don't believe in or you know you're scared, you're scared to fight. So yeah, I think it's you know we lose the human aspect of this thing and the. Uh, and sort of, you know, the, 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 when we make it into like a moral fairy tale. Yeah, you know, my, uh, my girlfriend was telling me earlier today that she was listening to BBC World Service. So I'm, I'm relaying secondhand what she told me. I haven't verified it myself yet, but I have no reason to doubt the veracity of what she told me. Um, but she was listening to BBC World Service and a person who was from, uh, I don't know which province in particular, but one of the provinces in Ukraine that had this re- a referendum recently is now, and is now going to be annexed, uh, a person originally from one of those areas, like a, a Ukrainian, was talking in English to uh, like, uh, the BBC, and that person reported that to them, lamentably, uh, over half of the native population there would favor a referendum and would favor entering Russia. Um, now, that doesn't mean that that approximation of some like something like fifty plus percent of the population wanted to join Russia is like accurate, uh, but it's you know an indicator of something like potentially what the public opinion is. Now, of course, it's going to be skewed by the the Russian authorities claiming that like ninety nine percent voted in favor of annexation. So if it's fifty five percent, ninety nine percent is not plausible. Um, but you know, even to say, even to report that something like you know roughly half or more of a population in one of these towns in like a, one of the next territories actually does favor entering Russia or would have favored a referendum or something. Um, even that you could barely say because it's automatically going to get construed as you offering like an affirmative defense of the mechanics of the referendum or an affirmative defense of Putin uh, annexing the territories and, and, and so forth. So like even any all rational discussion around so many dimensions of this issue have been so, you know, uh, stamped out and made impossible. Uh, Iggy, you're up, yeah. and then we'll go to Huggy, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to hang around on the World War II thing. I, I was the chap who sent you an email about cats. I think cats should be very lucky that you spent so much time refuting him. Good on you. And I think that last article's... You know, incredibly detailed. So, commend your efforts to, to and the care that you've got into the research, right? I'll just very quickly on that. Is Katz the worst example of your most public critic on that topic, or, or did you take shit from even bigger hitters? Um, well, I mean, the reason why I chose to reply to Katz um, is because even though, as I wrote in that article, he spent six years nursing a psychotic personal hatred of me. Um, he did at least purport to have done a thorough critique where he went, you know, point by point and claimed to be refuting me and calling me a liar. I mean, that, you know, right. he was saying not, yeah, not, not that he disagreed that or he thought my mode of victory. analysis was flawed. He was saying that I was overtly, consciously lying yeah, chronically. Okay. So, um, so, so yeah, I mean, he's one of the most, I, th- I think, you know, his, you know, 
something is going on with him that I can't explain, but that I was first exposed to six years ago when all of a sudden he started fixating on me. Um, that has to do with his, you know, I'm not even psychoanalyzing him. I'm not trying to get inside his head to, to make this statement. I'm going based on the evidence. And the evidence is that he yeah, has this yeah, vicious personal hatred to me. And that informed, obviously, what he purported to be a critique. And, you know, when you're, when you're, when you, appear to be fundamentally motivated by vicious personal animus, even if you're purported to be motivated by the substance. You yeah. shouldn't be surprised that when actually you're uh, dealt with on the substance, your claims collapse, and that's what happened yeah, with yeah. cats. Understood. Okay, because I was just kind of thinking, if he was the worst of your public, um, you know, crit crit critics... I mean, there are trolls who have been to have said crazier stuff, but like... Uh, or like made crazier allegations. Like I'm a, I mean, there was this one guy who was a postdoctorate of some sort in history at the University of Virginia who accused me of doing quote full blown Holocaust denial. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't really stand up, does it? None of what you wrote yeah. stood up from what I saw to that kind of thing. That's 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 shameful to sort of. It doesn't. It yeah. defies logic. So so I, I I understand why you've taken such care with this because I think you've put it to bed as far as any rational person would look at this and go fucking hell it's, it's been put to bed and um, on the Ukraine thing the, 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 the for me you I think that the sentiment of like rational discussion has kind of evaporated is true to some extent right so if you I, I was I was trying to find genuinely trying to find the primary source document for the mobilization rules of what is in force in Russia partially to check Scott Ritter's explanation of what's going on Okay, and also partially to start vetting for myself the objections of the reported objections of citizens, right? And there was somebody ran a room here um, going a rant about the mobilization. So I thought, oh, if that's who, who is it? So I went and listened, and she's somebody who wasn't, I think she was in Tajikistan or something. So I thought, okay, cool, she may, maybe she has this. She didn't have it at all. She didn't know it. And what she claimed was that. The mobilization didn't have what didn't mean didn't have like she, she a primary source as, 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 on as, the as a, as a much closer nation. Yeah, yeah. She didn't. She couldn't point me to the the the, the, the military um, source document saying these are the rules for mobilization. This is who's eligible, right? right? And that's what I'm looking for. So I'm trying to find that. But what she did, what what did come out? Well, just just, just really quickly, Igly, really, really quickly, do you know that 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 such a document would have to exist, or could it just be ad hoc that? It wouldn't well, be encapsulated by any document. So, so what I'm trying to do is, is, is rationally assess Ritter's claims, which I'll tell you in a sec, and, and then compare that to how the West is reporting who's objecting to the mobilisation, right? Now, Ritter claims that the mobilisation, for example, is only 300,000 people out of reservists who have already served, done national service in Russia, who could are not and they're not unqualified citizens who never served in the military before, right? And they're also um, going to have primary profiles, which are um, they're not going to be just like anyone who may have done a desk, been a desk jockey in the military. They're going to either be combat ready, capable ex infantry, or they're going to be backline direct primary you know, uh, war support, right? Because you need those skills first to prosecute the. Uh, anticipated offensive move to take Odessa and I think Kherson and North, I always get them the wrong way around, right? That's his theory, right? So I'm trying to work out, is that true? Now, this person didn't actually, despite the fact that she was willing to go on calling and go, I've got a rant about mobilization in Russia, literally what she called the room. She didn't know that the difference between a draft and a mobilization and couldn't explain it to me. And I said, well, is it a draft or is it a mobilization? 
and she didn't know the difference. And then I said, okay, are they taking people from, from, from the citizenry? And she said, yeah, they are taking some people. I said, yeah, but what about students? Because they're ineligible. I said, no. Um, she gave me this bizarre example. And, and my point is, and I think Richard used the word draft, right? Now, is it a draft or is it mobilization? And we don't even know the answer to that, right? Because our media isn't really explaining it to us, right? And that's how, that's how shit the truth is in this situation. Never mind who blew up the, uh, who blew up the pipeline, if you see yeah. what I mean. So, so it's, it's almost like well, yeah, I, I think you have a, to be I, your own journalist in order to even have a remotely partially informed opinion on this. Well, you should be your own journalist. If yeah. by being your own journalist you mean ensure that you're checking claims by reference to as much primary source material exactly. as you can reasonably acquire, then you should do that. Most journalists don't even do that. Yeah. Um, I hope I do that as much as possible. There may be some times when I err, but I would like to think that most people who, uh, who follow me can have some reasonable degree of confidence that my claims are going to be checked in that fashion. And if I make a mistake, I'll acknowledge it. Yeah. And, and you, you making the point, I think you've made the point before about the, the Nazi presence, you know, the penetration of far right ultranationalists extremists into militia, paramilitary, military, police and security state apparatus in Ukraine. People are in flat out denial about that. But there is the Atlantic, the Council for Foreign Relations, Consortium News, G B BBC, Guardian, uh, New York Times. Anything from 2014 onwards, they all report this phenomenon. Suddenly we switch right, off that yeah. narrative. There is no Nazi stuff there. And we're not trying to absorb a Nazi regime into the EU and into NATO. We're not doing that. Why not? Because we've stopped talking about that issue. Yet it's all been previously reported. It's, it's ridiculous that we have descended to this level of, frankly, it's not even narrative, is it? It's just fabrication. Right? Yeah, you know, my, my angle on that really has always been not to, you know, hand ring about how awful it is that Nazis appear to possibly exist in Ukraine. Other people can make that argument if they want. Yeah. My point has always been to more note that a, in particular, one particular, you know, if, what do you call it, a division or something within that's been formally integrated into the Ukraine military, the, the Azov Battalion, right? And not, yeah. to, not to dwell on it, but formally integrated into the Ukraine military, universally recognized virtually, uh, including you know, by the U.S. Congress, by the New York Times, by um, the utmost of mainstream sources prior to 2022 uh, as at least ideologically infused with Nazism to the point where you can you know, reasonably characterize it as a Nazi organization to some extent, or even if you don't even want to ideologically characterize it, because I'm told, and this is plausible, that there's a lot of variability or variance ideologically within the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. That's possibly true. Uh, but at the very least, they, they, until they did a PR move a couple months ago and changed the symbol, their main symbols were the premier symbols associated with like Nazi Germany, not neo-Nazism, with actual Nazi Germany, like the Wolf's Angle and the Black Sun and so forth, right? And I would only, the reason why I would bring this up is not because I want to hand ring about the, the Black Sun or the Wolf's Angle, right? If I, if I, if I might be mis mispronouncing that. But because the U.S. had been suffused with this 
panic, this manufactured panic largely. Uh, I would say you know, largely manufactured, not entirely manufactured, but a good portion of it was manufactured, whereby everyone was supposed to be hugely petrified that Nazis were on the march in the U.S. domestically, that Donald Trump had empowered them, um, that you know, actual Nazis and fascists and white supremacists and white nationalists were becoming this hugely formidable political force and we had to have a popular front to combat them and you know, vote for Joe Biden and so on and so forth. You know, this was kind of a hysteria that racked the U.S. media and political class uh, for, for years. And then all of a sudden, you know, once Trump's out of office and once a war starts that people want to feel comfortable uh, cheering for, uh, all of a sudden the fact that U.S. subsidies and arms are being mm-hmm. provisioned to a military, a foreign military in which a battalion has been integrated that actually brandishes the Black Sun as one of its chief logos in the wolf's angle, like the quintessential symbols of Nazism, that you can actually still find on the uh, Anti-Defamation League's database of Nazi symbology. Um, some, some, for, somehow, that's no problem. Nobody even takes notice of it. Um, so, you know, again, the, the panic we were all supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, working a lather over around so the supposed ascendance of, of Nazis in the United States, uh, which, you know, for a lot of people just simply meant Republicans uh, in many cases, um, that was voided uh, even when tangibly, directly, the U.S. military was, you know, subsidizing a military where there's overt Nazi symbology attached to the most kind of lionized um, Battalion, and if you look at popular media coverage during the siege of Mariupol uh, in you know April May, uh, you know the, the the Azov fighters in that factory, uh, they were being heralded as quote defenders. They were mm. being interviewed on Western media. They were being celebrated as as heroes, and nobody mentioned what the symbols were that they used to present themselves in terms of their ideological disposition so it's just yeah, amazing but, and that, that that's but, that that was mostly what i was wanting to point out whenever i've brought up this yeah this very quickly i mean that, that this is a reflection though that we have entered long ago degradation gradations of the 1984 new speak change of language perversion of language in order to essentially confuse and obfuscate the truth you simply label things other things don't you or you say nothing about something when it becomes politically inconvenient and just progress another narrative and effectively shut out all of the voices from your information sphere that raise uh, doubts. And that this is nothing but Orwellian, really, if you think about it. And the problem is that this forces a person like me to essentially believe nothing until I can verify something. And that is very, very difficult and time-consuming way to consume information. But I don't think there's any choice if you want to be partially informed. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Iggy. Um, I am going to take the next two callers. Richard, I know it's, we've been going for a while, so if you have to leave, feel free. Um, or you can stick around, whatever you want. Uh, I'm going to go to Heidi and, and Daniel. So, Heidi, you're up. Hi. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I just want to commend you for um, basically standing up against the hegemonic narrative uh, I know how much courage it takes. I've stood alone on a lot of issues because of what I perceived as the truth and have had people hate me for it. And I don't even have a reputation to protect like you. But, you know, it also does kind of fortify your reputation because people are, are going to listen to what you have to say because they know 
you are telling the truth as you see it. So thank you for doing that. Um, I also want to say a lot of the uh, comments from the other callers, it sounds like my same uh, uh, childhood. I was made to believe that FDR was some kind of reluctant hero, you know, by, you know, getting us involved in World War II. And um, we should all basically worship the ground he walks on and all this crap. And, uh, you know, fuck that. Uh, but uh, two other things I wanted to say is that my dad told me every war that every uh, country, uh, all the people that have to go fight it are people with guns at their back. And um, another thing I wanted to mention that my dad told me, which I find kind of amusing with the whole, you know, Nazi and Hitler thing, is he knows people that were, that grew up in Nazi Germany as Germans, as, you know, quote unquote, good Germans. And this is not an endorsement, by the way. But um, the point is, is that they were people that lived there, lived through it. And they loved it because, you know, there were no vagrants. There were no uh, drunks on the street. There were no gamblers. There were no, you know, everybody was, it was like 100% full employment by the state. Everybody was at work in, in an orderly society doing what they were supposed to do. And, you know, basically, um, you know, it was all family oriented, of course, because they wanted to breed these areas. Except people. with respect to the Jews, of course. <laughs> oh, no, not, not just the Jews, yeah. the gypsies yeah. and, and right, any yeah. other. And even, you know, uh, dark, uh, dark, um, what do you call it? Colored, dark, dark pigmented Germans weren't. weren't yeah. uh, Although I think it's fair to say that the, the, the quote unquote problem of Jews as the Nazis saw it had sort of like a unique valence to it um, in that like, you know, hence why they eventually felt that a conclusion needed to be proffered for the so to to enact a so-called final solution. But anyway, we're getting into I, I I understand what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I was like I said, I'm not trying to endorse it. I'm just saying that this no, was I know. the lived of experience not. of these people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was basically all I wanted to say. Oh, did I say, did I mention, I think it's ironic that, uh, Noam Chomsky is actually a victim of his own thesis, manufacturing consent. That was something <laughs> else I wanted to say. Well, right? I don't know. I feel like he would, he would, uh, retort that he's come to his view on his own volition and it's his sincere position and he's not being like unduly influenced by like the manufacturers of consent or something along those lines. I don't know. Um, thanks, Heidi. Yeah, I, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, uh, when they criticize me or they express sort of bewilderment about what I'm doing or saying, they'll say stuff like, wow, don't you, don't you care about preserving your, your reputation? Um, and all I can say or reply to that is I have never, for better or worse, done anything or said anything with my, the primary objective being to, quote, enhance my reputation or protect my reputation. It just doesn't factor into my mind. Um, so if people want to have a conception of what my reputation is, uh, I would hope that it's something reminiscent of what Heidi outlined there, which is that, you know, I will just say and report and, you know, present the, the what I regard to be the best approximation of the truth, uh, you know, yeah, to the best of my, to best my ability. So, yeah. Your authenticity is what people can actually, you know, grasp when they uh, hear you and read your, your work. So yeah. I appreciate it. All right. It. Well, thanks, Heidi. looks like the uh, – what had maybe was going to be the last caller has dropped out. Um, so we'll end it there. 
And uh, thanks, Richard. And uh, we'll see everybody soon.